Thank you. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing today? Feeling, feeling awake? So for those of you who don't know me or don't know me well, my name is Trenton Walker. I'm one of the pastors in Church 21, and our congregation meets Sunday afternoons around 3 p.m., okay? And the worst case scenario, I've actually had someone tell me that they woke up at 1 to come be at church at 3, and they were, like, late for church. I was like, really? We meet at 3. Uh, but the thing is, I'm getting to a point. I don't usually, like, have to talk in a coherent way on Sunday mornings. And last week I preached uh, in the West Island, and when I first came into Church 21, I met the Altons. They were the people that I went to City Group with. And I went up to Judy Alton last Sunday, and I said, nice to meet you. So I just want to acknowledge that Sunday mornings, I need God to speak through me, because on my own, I'm just going to say really dumb stuff. So I'm going to pray again before we get started, and then we'll get into stuff. Heavenly Father, I just thank you uh, that we're weak and you're strong, and that we have frequent reminders of that. So today, uh, God, if there's anyone that came in here feeling really great, really strong, uh, they would be able to find uh, a way to acknowledge their need for you. Uh, but then, God, for those of us who, who know we don't have it all together, uh, we're here because we know your word says that it, it gives us access to you, uh, gives us wisdom for life. We're here to, to seek you because we need you. God, I pray that you would speak to us today through your word. Uh, and I pray that you'd protect me from myself, from saying things that are my own words. I do want to be a vessel for your Holy Spirit to speak to the church today. So I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, are there any lifeguards in the room? Just raise your hand if you're a lifeguard. We got a lifeguard. Awesome. So, when I was growing up, my mom and dad paid for me to get all of the training to be a lifeguard because they're like, that way, you're going to have a job that doesn't pay minimum wage. It'll give you that little extra edge to, to earn some money for yourself. And I was like, this is, this is great because lifeguarding classes cost a lot. Then I'm, I don't have to pay for that. I'm just going to get paid more. And so what did I do with my lifeguard training? I went and worked at camps, Christian camps, okay? And I'm going to tell you, they don't even pay minimum wage at Christian camps. They give you an honorarium. They're like, please, we need lifeguards or else we won't be able to open up, like, the pool or the beach. And we'll give you, like, $500 for your whole summer. And you know, and like, you're 16, and it's back in, like, 2006, you're like, this is like a lot of money. I could buy an Xbox with this. So you go ahead and you do it. And at camp, there would be uh, this, the, the, the beachfront, lifeguards, and a buddy system. Okay, so all the kids had to have a, their buddy with them or they weren't even allowed onto like the waterfront. And we had this huge pegboard and all the kids had the number. Okay, we're like buddy group 11. You put the peg in the board. And if ever anything bad happened, you're like, okay, are all the pegs in the board? Okay, there's no kids that have left. That means there's no kids that are like underwater if you couldn't find them all. Or in the case, the worst case scenario, you'd be like, we need to jump in the lake. There's kids missing and they're not removed from the pegboard. So there's a problem that's happened. And so it was all very above board. We wanted to make sure that the kids were well taken care of because their safety mattered. <clears throat> you couldn't just have the parents coming back to camp and be like, hey, your, your child didn't make it this week. And they'd be like, what? Why? What happened? And where were you? And how, how is this possible? And, and you know, like, what, what kind of response would it be to, to say to a parent, like, or e let's just back it off a little. Let's just say they're injured, okay? They're in the infirmary. They got really injured. They like, inhaled a lot of water, and they need to rest. Um, the parents would still be quite upset, and they'd be like, where were you? And if you were saying, well, 
we don't have the resources to have lifeguards uh, because we've invested all that time and energy into making really good meals, okay? We want to have great meals, uh, and when we're done pre prepping the meals, we also spend a lot of time uh, preparing the, 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 the chapel sessions. And so that's where we're investing our time. So when we have the, the water time, the kids kind of just have to fend for themselves, you know? Uh, that would be unacceptable, right? Everyone agrees, you know? And uh, for anyone who is a parent here, you'd be like, I, this is scaring me so much that I'm not sending my kids to camp this summer. But that's, that's not what happens. We took it seriously. We wanted the kids to be safe because we know that there is danger. And so the point I'm getting to is that it's not natural for us to just stand by when someone's in danger, right? Can we agree with that? You're either going to go into action in some way or another. But do we stand by in the church while sin is killing people? Let's turn to Romans 8.13. Uh, and if you're going to take notes, my first point is put sin to death. Okay, Romans 8.13, I have so many verses for today, not like a huge amount, but so many that I just put them in my notes, so I'm not going to be turning anywhere other than Romans 8.13. Uh, so if I tell you a verse, you're welcome to turn there, but I myself won't even be turning there. Uh, so let me get to the right page. Romans 8.13, and we can read that together uh, today. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All right, that's really interesting. We don't talk a lot about that in our day-to-day -day life. Am I putting the flesh to death, or is the flesh putting me to death? How's your day going? Are you dying? Uh, but we want to be intentional as a church. We don't want to stand by while sin is killing people. That's a danger, and, and we, are, we are responsible for it as the church leadership as the body, we're responsible for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So there is a theological term in this passage that has built a whole doctrine of theology. Uh, the word is not here because it's taken from the King James Version, but it's instead of saying put to death, the word was mortify, okay? So mortify the flesh. Um, and so the, that doctrine is called mortification, okay? Now, we're not going to talk a lot about that today, but I'd like to just acknowledge that we probably don't use the word mortify very often in our conversations. Did anyone use the word mortify in the last week? Someone raised their hand. And so <coughs> I would say that today the word has been a little bit diluted from the original context of meaning like violently putting to death something. Um, if you would use the word mortify, you might say like I was mortified by my dad's dad joke at supper last night. Or I would say I was mortified when no one laughed at my dad joke. And that's the way that we would use the word. We were embarrassed. Our, our pride was hurt a little bit. And I actually think that is the way that we talk about sin. We're embarrassed or our pride was wounded when we fall into sin. But this word mortify found in Romans 8.13, it's putting to death in a ruthless, full-hearted way. You're resisting sinful practice uh, in a total uh, uh, violent <laughs> attack on sin. Uh, the Greek word that was used to translate to putting to death or the translation mortify, that Greek word is thanotu, okay? Thanotu is total, complete, and violent. So is that our day-to-day -day practice when we encounter a temptation to sin? We're like, I'm going to thanotu this, 
all the way. I'm going to violently put to death this sin, this sin in my life, this temptation in my life. And I just want to acknowledge that maybe that's not our day-to-day experience, violently putting sin to death in our life. But what's the main point? Well, this verse is saying, uh, calling us to do that. This verse is calling us to put sin to death in your life. Uh, but it's not what we experience. And so my question is, why? Why do we try to put sin to death and then fail? And, and before we continue, I just want to acknowledge that maybe you're here today exploring what the Bible teaches, and you're like, man, this guy really jumped in to a lot of stuff I'm not comfortable with. And that's, that's true. The Bible is something, it brings a lot of things to light that we might not be comfortable with. So one of those things is sin. And sin is what God, what God would say is wrong. And that the Bible says God has a right to say that things are right and wrong. Uh, and sin is the thing that we choose instead of God. God wants to free us from that, and we will get to that today. So thank you for being here. If you're just engaging at that level, we're going to continue to explore this. So don't disconnect right away. Uh, the reality is that at a certain point, all of us have this inner sense that something is like good and something is bad, and we kind of know when we choose the bad thing, at the very least. You can probably track with me on that. So there's these times where you're like, this thing's a bad thing, and I did it anyways. And you're like, I tried to not do it, and I did it anyways. I tried, and I failed. And so my next point for today, so if you took notes, the first one was put sin to death. The next point is it's not that easy, all right, if you're taking notes. So mortification doesn't just look at killing sin. It's not just this surface level, I have to kill this, I have to stop it. It actually is talking about the motivations of the heart. And when you start talking about the motivations of the heart, it's a whole other can of worms. You're like, oh, that's a lot harder than just not doing the thing. Because, you know, if I don't do the thing with my hands or my, my body, I still might be thinking about it and reflecting on it in my heart. And so I'd love to say that if you're here today and, and you profess Jesus as your Savior, uh, your King, uh, your treasure, you're like, I am 100% motivated by the gospel. The gospel sufficiently motivates me in all of my decision-making in life uh, that would be ideal, and by God's grace, sometimes that's true. Sometimes we're like, wow, the gospel is so beautiful. Like, I don't need anything else. I just need Jesus, and that's such a, that's such a blessing. That is sometimes our experience, but I want to acknowledge the body gives really strong motivations too, and sometimes these motivations are so strong. These, these urges, these desires are so powerful that you might end up thinking, if this is this strong, if I want this thing this bad, then it must not be bad. It must be good, and maybe I need to reorient what I think is right and wrong around what my body is telling me I need. And maybe I need to reorient even my identity around this desire. And so what I want to say is that if you don't know Christ, meaning that if you have not been redeemed by his righteousness, I'll explain that uh, in just a couple minutes. If you've not been redeemed by his righteousness— to look at the urges of the body and say, this must be my absolute right and wrong. What my body wants is what is true. It's what my identity is. If you don't know Christ, that's actually very logical, okay? And so you might be here today exploring what the Bible says, and you're like, whoa, 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 what are you saying? And I'm, I'm, I want to meet you midway and say, if you've never heard what the Bible says about, about Jesus, about God's intended design and creation, and you've said, what my body wants is who I am, that's actually a logical conclusion until you're faced with what the Bible teaches. 
Uh, and so I, we're going to look at that. The Bible says that the flesh is your, your physical experience here on earth. Uh, the flesh goes beyond just your, 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 your bones, your muscles, your fat. It's also your heart desire, so it goes a little bit into your consciousness, included in that definition of flesh. But my point is that we are all made to have a Lord. We're made to be ruled by something. And you, that, most people here, I can just acknowledge, you don't want to be told that. You don't want to be told, I was made to be ruled by something. Uh, but ultimately, it's a good thing. God wants to bring order to your life. God wants to bring goodness to your life, and that comes under the ruling and lordship of Jesus. But if you don't have the ruling and lordship of Jesus in your life, the thing that is lord over you is your flesh. It is your body. It's going to happily assume that role. So I just want to read uh, Romans 8, 12. Uh, just the same page that you're probably already in. So then, brothers, and also the footnote says, and sisters. So then, brother and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So I need to get into a point, because why do we not live according to the flesh? Why do we put the flesh to death in our life? It's because we're not debtors to the flesh. We don't owe the flesh anything. If you are saved from yourself, and you're given Christ, you don't actually have to give the flesh any of the things that it's demanding, any of the desires it's demanding. You can uh, be free in Jesus, uh, even though the flesh still wants you to be enslaved to it. So in Jesus, you're free. Uh, at that point of coming into freedom in Christ, you're actually going to have your first opportunity to have freedom of choice, to be like, hey, I can choose not to give myself this thing. I can choose this other thing that's better for me. Uh, and we'll get into a little bit more specific details, but I'm sure you're, you're probably processing on your own what that might look like. The point is that if you're in Christ— not only can you put the flesh to death, but you, owe, you don't owe the flesh anything. You actually owe Jesus everything because he's given you freedom from a really bad Lord, and now he's a really good Lord. Uh, and so the Bible does describe what are these, like, things of the flesh. And I just wanted to list a couple here from Colossians 3, 5. You don't have to turn there. I'm just bullet pointing them here. A couple of the definitions of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. So I won't explain every single one of those things, but I will just say that the New Testament uh, Greek word for sexual immorality is porneia, okay? And then we obviously get the word porn. And so when you're thinking about porn, uh, just for a moment, on Sunday morning, that word means sexual immorality. Uh, and so just to take a moment to take a step back and say, most of our culture today has accepted the pursuit of sexual, sexual satisfaction as something that's good for us. And so porn is something that is good. That's what the culture would say. And the Bible is saying that that's sexual immorality. It's actually something that your flesh is demanding of you. And we go back to these verses and we say, well, if you're in Christ, you don't owe your flesh that. Actually, you're freed from those demands that your flesh is making and you don't actually have to identify by pursuing the satisfaction of those desires. You can identify as who you are in Christ. Okay, and so that would apply to many of these different definitions of what it means to be in the flesh. And so my question today is, do you find yourself at times in the flesh? Do you find yourself pursuing these very powerful 
desires that the, the flesh is providing to you. And I mean, we don't have to just talk about porn. You know, I wasn't planning on even talking about it that much, as I have already. So <coughs> let's back off a bit from that and just say, I have really, really strong desires to eat. Does anyone agree with that? Do you most days eat? Yes. And so eating, is it a bad thing? No. Thank you. Yes. I love that. I love that feedback. Feeding is a good thing. And, you know, if you had Jeff Wright and I, Jeff is the pastor of the West Island location. If you had Jeff Wright and I together, we'd get, like, to a point where we're going to start praying to thank God for food because we love food so much and we know that it's a gift from him. The thing is that the flesh is going to come in and be like, hey, I'd like to assume the rule and lordship over this area of your life. And I know how much you like food, so why don't you push that to the extreme? Push that all the way to gluttony. I'd love to see you gain a couple pounds, maybe even become obese. That's what I want for you. And that's where we have to say, no, actually, I, I can say no to you, uh, the flesh. I know that that's not what I want. I know that that would put, go outside of enjoying what God has created as good in his creation. And so there's many different ways that we can be in the flesh. Uh, and so I just want to invite you to, to reflect on that. Uh, and even beyond an actual action, there's a heart motivation. Uh, there's that heart battle that happens. And so when the flesh is removed from the position of lordship, when we, when we preach through Ephesians, we talked about how Jesus uh, will take the headship over each and every individual believer and also the church. And the, the image there, it's very vivid, that without Jesus, you actually don't have a head. It's just like a, a flat skin top on your shoulders. You don't have a head. And then when you come under Christ, then you receive headship and direction in your life. Uh, and so that's what is the reality here too. When you come uh, into just the world, the flesh is going to be like, I'm your Lord. I'm your head. I'm giving you direction. And it's kind of just balancing there, trying to pretend that it's in that uh, position of authority. And when Jesus comes and takes that real position of authority in your life, the flesh is always going to be trying to get back to that position, to hold on to influence. And so you might kind of um, relate to the, the whole idea of, like, my body wants this thing. I know it's not a good thing, so I'm going to say no to it. Uh, you might know, have scripture to back it up and be like, God says this is not a good thing, so I'm going to say no to it. Uh, but the flesh is going to be like, well, you can't just cut it out cold turkey. You know, you, you got to wean yourself clean. Okay, so like let's hold on to this a little bit longer and like just kind of get it under control. That would be a, a one way the flesh would try to continue to hold on to that influence in your life. Another, another point would be like let's say that it, you believe that lie and then you get to a point where you're like, it's not a good thing for me, but I've got it under control. I definitely haven't cut it out of my life though. That's where the flesh wants to like live. That's the best case scenario for the flesh if you've come... Uh, to be in Christ. And so I want to just talk to you a little bit about my wife, Lorianne. Okay? My wife, Lorianne, is at war with spiders. Okay? There, I would actually say that I think she has arachnophobia. Uh, there's just been times where I have been, like, so startled reading a book, doing something, and, like, this scream. And I'm like, now I'm used to it. I know that there's not actually a life or death situation. I'm used to it, and I know I probably have to go kill a spider. And Lori, Lori is like the best definition of that Thano 2 type of attack on spiders. Total, it's violent, uh, and she will 
pursue it to the fullest extent. So no spiders are safe in our house. I have tried to like ba- help her in this, um, her view on spiders. Uh, I would see myself as like a spider advocate. And I would say there's certain spiders that are hunter spiders. And so you don't see them making like a, a web. You see them just walking around the house. Those are the ones that she hates the most. And I see them sometimes. I'm like, man, that's a healthy spider. Like that thing has been eating. And it's like if that, I'm, that thing's not going to bug me. I know it's not going to come near me. I know it's fine. It's going to do its little thing. But the things that it's eating, those things bother me more. I can't see them. Maybe they're, like, in my clothes. Maybe they're, like, in different parts of the house. Maybe we can have this, like, uh, agreement. You eat the little things that we can't see, and I won't kill you. And I try to bring Lori into that, uh, and she doesn't buy it. They die. Uh, And so the other thing is, I don't know if anyone here can relate to me, but I just think that jumping spiders are amazing little critters. I see some shaking no's and some shaking yet's, like, I've gone, like, there's been a jumping spider on the t- kitchen table, and I've gone to be like, sorry, buddy. And, and it, like, turns and, like, looks up at me. And, I, and so I'm like, okay, you got me, and I, I just throw it outside. Um, so comparison. This isn't just a story for the sake of story. When it comes to the flesh, are you like Lori, waging war against spiders? Are you waging war? Is, it, is no temptation of the flesh safe in your life? Or are you a little bit more like me where you're, you're thinking to yourself, oh, you know what? Like, we can agree to, like, you know, coexist, you know? Or maybe you're, like, literally like me where you see a temptation in your life. Sometimes I see spiders, and I'm like, oh, there's a spider. And then I just don't do anything about it. And then I'm like, oh, where did that spider go? Huh, like, Lori's not going to like that. And then you say the next day, Yikes, uh, a nest hatched. And there was one time I wasn't at home, and there were like probably hundreds to a thousand little baby spiders coming out of one of our light, uh, light fixture. And I was like, do I have to come home for this, Lori? Or like, can you? <laughs> she sprayed basically every chemical on it, and it, I think it resolved that. But the point is, are you putting sin to death, or are you just letting it exist in your life? Uh, because sin will happily disappear just then again to reappear somewhere else. And also, in that process of disappearing and reappearing, it happily multiplies as well in your life. So the point now we're getting to is, okay, this is serious, so we're going to try, like, harder. We're going to continue to try. And we might experience continued failure in this area, falling into sin, falling into temptation. And the question then we come to is, who can help? Who can help? I literally wrote, pause for Sunday school answer. So can you at least, thank you. (laughs) We need Jesus. We need Christ. And that is the only way that you can truly choose anything anything other than the flesh is if you are in Christ. Like I said, he gives you that first real opportunity to choose something other than what the flesh wants in one shape or form. Uh, And so then these words I said earlier, Christ can redeem you by his righteousness. Redeem, that word means to be saved, uh, is the easiest way to explain it. So Jesus can save you. What is he saving you from? He's saving you from sin. He's saving you from the flesh. He's saving you from the eternal result of living according to the flesh, living under the lordship of the flesh, which is death, uh, eternal death. He's saving you from that. He's also saving you from the day-to-day 
just experiences of brokenness in your life. When you're like, I chose to do this thing. I, I chose to eat too much food for four years straight, and now I'm obese, and now I really have to take things under control. He's, Jesus wants to save you and bring a better order, a better direction to your life than the flesh can offer. So Jesus wants to redeem you by his righteousness. Now, this is going to be the most simple way you've ever heard this explained. You're going to be saved from your wrongness by Jesus' rightness. Do you think you can remember that? You're going to be saved from your wrongness by Jesus' rightness. And, and maybe you can relate uh, to just hearing the, the, that's the saying, like, that person needs to be saved from themselves, or, or I need to be saved from myself. And so the reality here today is that what the Bible presents is that we all need to be saved from ourselves. The flesh is ruling us if we're not in Christ in one way or another. Uh, and it's, if you know, a lot of people, you're like, wait, I, I'm still disconnecting at a certain point because, like, I know people that are, don't go to church that aren't Christian that, like, do good things in the world. And that's, like, that disappearing and reappearing of the flesh that I'm kind of talking about. The flesh presents itself in many different shapes and forms. And so maybe people could do really great things in the world, but for very selfish reasons. That's why we don't only look at the action, we look at the heart as well in that, in that mortification. It addresses the heart. And so the reality is that we need to be saved from ourselves. Christ can come and save you from your wrongness, and the rest of your life will be you becoming a little bit more like his rightness. And, and that's a good thing. That's something that we celebrate in the church. And the, the whole putting sin to death that we're talking about, that's only possible uh, because Christ allowed sin to put him to death. The Bible says that Jesus came into the world. He lived a righteous life. So he lived right. He never did anything wrong, uh, according to what Scripture would say. And then he allowed sin to kill him so that anyone who comes into Christ, who is in Christ, could be freed from sin and not experience the end result, which is death. Now, sin would happily put to death as many people as it can. It would happily put you to death. But Jesus took sin, that sin that would happily put you to death, and he allowed that to put him to death so that you could receive him, have his righteousness, be made right and redeemed in him. Uh, again, this Romans eight thirteen. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Christ didn't live according to the flesh. And he died your death so that you can have him. And now this is true for anyone here exploring faith, but it's true for anyone here who says, I'm in Christ, I've been in Christ for a year, uh, a month, or my whole life. Jesus died your death. Are you living today like that? That Jesus died your death? Are you living in gratitude? Are you living in the freedom that he's given you to wage war against sin, to put sin to death? He died so you could have him. He died so you could have his life. He died so you could have his Holy Spirit. And he's going to enable you to live free from the flesh and actually put the flesh to death. And I just want to read you a quote from Til Timothy Keller. He, he actually passed away this week. And it, it was something so special about what he said going towards death was that I'm ready to meet Jesus. And I think that that's something so true about the way that he preached God's word um, that he knew who he was in Christ. And so on his commentary in Romans 8.13, this is what he said. So I'm going to read this for you. Paul is saying that sin can only be cut off at the root 
if we consistently expose ourselves to the unimaginable love of Christ for us. This exposure simulates a wave of gratitude and feeling of indebtedness. Sin can only grow in soil of self-pity and a feeling of owedness. I'm not getting a fair shake. I'm not getting my needs met. I've had a hard week. God owes me. People owe me. I owe me. That's the heart attitude of owedness or entitlement. But Paul says, you must remind yourself that you are a debtor. If you bathe yourself in the remembrance of the grace of God, that will loosen, weaken, and kill sin at the motivational level. End quote. So are you exposing yourself to the unimaginable love of Christ on a regular basis? True mortification, it's putting sin to death by putting your focus on Jesus. Did you hear that? True mortification is putting sin to death by worshiping Jesus. Your flesh is always going to direct your focus onto what you don't have and what other people have and why, and why you need to fill in that gap. If when you focus on Jesus, you're going to find yourself realizing how much you do have in him. Uh, and you're going to find yourself worshiping him. And you're going to find it really hard to fulfill the desires of the flesh because you're going to find them undesirable. And so that's usually where a sermon like today would end. Don't try to do this on your own. Don't try to put the flesh to death on your own. It's only possible in Christ, if you're in Christ, and you can be in him today by acknowledging your need for him. And for all of us who have done that, then you have the Holy Spirit to help you put the flesh to death. So now go and do that. Now, today we're not going to end there. This was just the introduction. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, today we're not going to end there. This is where we put it into action. Uh, where we say, let's ruthlessly put sin to death in a very practical way, in, uh, similarly to Lori putting spiders to death. Leave no survivors. Okay? How can that look today as we leave here? And you might be now thinking, okay, he said it doesn't end with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, I'm ready for some heresy coming from Trenton at this moment. But that's not true. Jesus, he doesn't only leave us with himself and his Holy Spirit. He leaves us with his church, his bride. Now you're like, yes, okay, I, I agree with you, Trenton, right? Yes. So we have brothers and sisters in the church who are there to help point us at Jesus, to help us worship him. And remember, if you address the heart, if your heart's worshiping Jesus, that's the root of all sin. That's going to resolve most of the desires, the temptations of the flesh in your day-to-day -day life. So how can we fight sin through worshiping Jesus? I want to invite us into the idea of the first place that we do that is in friendship. This is like taking a huge turn. You're like, wow, I didn't see that coming. Friendship is where I should worship Jesus. That's interesting. And so I wanted to talk to you about five verses that will give us five points for friendship. And so if you just want to, like, I don't have really cool, like, titles for these five points. So you can just put the, the passage reference if you're taking notes. The first verse is the one that we read today, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10. And I didn't even, I'm not going to look it up in my scripture. I just wrote it in my notes. So just if, you, if I'm reading it faster, then you can turn there. I'm sorry. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. 
But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. When we apply this to the friendship that Jesus gives us in, uh, with brothers uh, and sisters in Christ and the church, what we realize is that a friend is someone who walks side by side with you, have a good reward for their toil. That means that we celebrate with each other as we're maturing in Christ, as we're worshiping Christ more than we're worshiping the things that we don't have. And then a friend, a brother or sister in Christ, is someone who's there to pick you up and point you back at Christ when you fall into temptation, when you fall into the temptations of the flesh. A friend is there to pick you up and say, hey, we can both agree that you don't, you're not feeling super satisfied from that thing, right? Now let's be satisfied in Christ. The next verse is Proverbs 27.6. Proverbs 27.6. Faithful are the words of a friend Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So just to explain this simply, someone who's not your friend is going to tell you everything you want to hear. Okay? They're going to butter you up. They're always going to be on your good side, always going to be pointing to, like, how good you are. And it's for some reason or another, it's for their own gain. Maybe even if it's just that they get to be your friend. But an enemy, this is an enemy. Someone who only tells you good things and tries to butter you up is your enemy. A friend is going to look at you and say, yo, there's this thing in your life that's really not good, and can I help you cut it out of your life? A friend is going to boldly speak the truth to you. And so when you are walking side by side with a brother in Christ or, or if you're walking side by side with a sister in Christ, if you, you're going to be the front line for seeing areas in their life that don't line up with worshiping Jesus, that where they're more kind of falling into temptation of the flesh, or maybe at the very least saying, like, I've just decided to coexist with this thing. You're the front line to say, hey, Scripture is pretty clear about, about what this would, should look like. And, it, and worshiping Jesus and having Jesus is so much better than this other thing. And I've had people come to me in, in the role of, of a pastor People often come and say, like, hey, there's this thing in this person's life. Should you address it? And I'm like, let's just think about that for a minute. So, like, they've been confiding in you, and randomly this pastor that they never talked to is like, hey, let's talk about this sin in your life. Like, if you see someone who's struggling in a certain area, you are the person that addresses that boldly with Scripture, prayerfully. Ask God, how can I bring this to light in a loving way? Pray that they would receive it. But you're the one, because you're the one walking side by side with them. You're the friend who's going to wound in a faithful way. You're going to speak boldly the truth of the gospel in that relationship. An enemy, remember this, an enemy is only going to say nice things about you. And maybe you're here today being like, whoa, I've got some friends that I I thought were friends that are actually my enemies because they're just buttering me up all the time. Um, The next point is Proverbs 18, 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So this is simple. Companions are there for what they can get out of you, and when things go bad, they're gone. Does anyone, has anyone had companions or currently know that they have companions in their life that they're like, I know that person's there if, like, I'm emotionally stable, if I have money, or whatever, fill in the blanks. But if things are really going bad, they're not interested in you. They're not interested in being around you. They're not friends. Biblically speaking, they're companions. 
A friend is there especially when things go bad. And this is a call to friendship. This is starting to sound daunting. You're like, there's nobody like that. And then you might also be like, I'm not a friend like that. And we'll talk about that in a minute when I finish this. So we have two more verses. Uh, Proverbs 17, 17. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. So I just wanted to, I didn't explain this as clearly in West Island and South Shore, uh, but a couple of verses later, later, what it says is that if someone is in your life always bringing up conflict and they seem to love conflict, they're not a friend, okay? And when you, when you look at this verse, it says, a friend loves at all times, a brother is born for adversity. I know that I'm a brother to two, to two guys. Evan Walker is my brother. And sometimes I bring conflict just for the sake of conflict into our brotherly love and friendship. And I, I'm not being a brother to him. I'm being someone who's an enemy to him, as the later verses would describe. Uh, and so I repented of that. Sometimes we do it just for fun. And when I say we, it's mostly me. And <laughs> the reality here is that a friend loves at all times. Uh, a brother is born for adversity. What that's saying is that a true brother or sister in Christ, uh, someone who's in Christ that's close to you, that's your friend, they're not going to pursue conflict for the sake of conflict. They're actually going to pursue resolving conflict. They're going to pursue reconciliation. And so that's a mark of true friendship. Someone who's like, hey, we had this huge disagreement or there's this, this thing that like, really shook our friendship. Let's reconcile that. Like, let's, ma- let's make it through this because our friendship is marked by our reconciliation. It's marked by this restoration that we can pursue with each other because of Jesus. So that's a true mark of friendship. Uh, resolving conflict, reconciliation. And the last verse in this, uh, these five points is Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen: Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. So the point here, these are like... We don't use swords anymore. Um, maybe some people have swords, I, and I'm not judging you. They're really cool. Um, we don't use swords, but this image here was really relevant to the people it was written to. You want to have a sharp sword when you're going into battle, and you want to be able to use that sword in battle well. And so the, the point here is a friend is going to encourage you and challenge you. And what that describes... Uh, is that that sharpening of each other is preparing each other for battle, encouraging and challenging each other to grow in our ability to deal with challenges in the future when you're alone or even when you're together. So you sharpen and encourage each other so that you're even more ready for battle, dealing with um, temptation, dealing with challenges. And so I just want to acknowledge something now. I've finished these five points. There's not a lot of five-point friends out there, are there? There's not, I'm going to include myself in this. There's not a lot of five-point friends in the room right now. There's a lot of people aspiring to this list, and that's what I want to invite you to today. Look at this image of what true friendship is and aspire to this. I know I'm probably a two-point friend, and I'm aspiring in three different areas to, to meet this image of true friendship. And the, the point that I want to get to is you could look at this and be like, there's no one who's going to be a friend to me like the, these verses, and I'm not that good of a friend, so I don't need friendship. And you would be cutting yourself off from a huge source of encouragement uh, and uh, a gift 
that Jesus has given to you in his life, death, and resurrection. You get salvation, you get the Holy Spirit, you get his church. So I want to encourage us to actually pursue this. And the reason we pursue this is because we're not going to stand by while sin is killing people. We hold an account for each other. We need to acknowledge that we need a buddy system. And Church 21, we're not going to go as far as pairing you up and giving you numbers, but we do want to see us meeting each other at the level of friendship to fight sin together, to hold an account for each other. Uh, the pastors of the church, we have a responsibility to serve the church, to care the church. And we are kind of like lifeguards, but it's a lot less whistling and yelling at kids and a lot more praying for you. And so we pray for you. We meet with you in one-on-one -on -one meetings. We will end up calling you time to time. But that's not the entire work of the church. The entire experience of a Christian life in the church is not a pastor meeting with you once a month. It's having weekly and sometimes daily t interactions with brothers and sisters in Christ where you're building each other up. And so that's what we want to call you to. We all need friends. We can serve each other through friendship. Uh, we need a buddy system, but we're not going to go to that extent. We have what's called change group in Church 21. Uh, it's not some amazing branding that's going to fix friendship in, in our church context. It's just a way that can help us pursue this type of friendship. And, and as I was thinking about this buddy system again, talked about the dangers, uh, talked about wanting to protect these kids from danger, but like, I want to acknowledge something. When it was swim time at camp, and the kids were all lined up to check in as they're like in their buddy groups, they didn't just go sit on the beach and say, like, hey, let's spend the whole day talking about, like, how yesterday you hurt yourself in the water, and we should decide whether or not we should swim today. Like, that, that happened once, I have to acknowledge. There was this one time this kid was so anxious about swimming. He was, like, we call it, like, a, um, a shallow kid with a deep-end a deep end kid. When they're paired together, it's a bad match because, like, they're, they're always fighting, and you would have to repair them. But the, po the point is that... The most kids just run straight into the water because that's the joy, right? Put your mind into like, I don't know, six to 12-year-old you going to camp and having swim time. You're like just running straight into the water, you're going to the trampoline, you're going to the diving board. That is true friendship. It's running towards the joy that is in Christ. So we want to guard against accountability groups. And I just want to say that account accountability groups are really terrible. Every time you meet, you're like, how did you fail this week? Oh, yeah, you're, you're really bad. How did I fail this week? Yeah, I'm a really terrible person. I can't wait till we meet next week. Yay. They always fail. Every accountability group that I have seen or been in has always failed. So change groups are not about that. It, there's a part of that. Obviously, this whole sermon is talking about putting sin to death. But change groups are about running together towards worshiping Christ. That's the heart change. That's where the motivation comes. So I just want to read to you uh, the definition of change group. We're going to share with you the document that you can read today. Uh, this is what the intention is. Um, change groups are to produce just what the name suggests, change. Change groups are for everyone and consist of groups of two to three men or women who meet together regularly to be changed by Jesus through scripture, prayer, and friendship. We aren't seeking mere behavioral change, nor are we seeking change that is disconnected from the means of change. Those are God's word, uh, God, his word, prayer, and his community. 
So the reality is here today that we have a lot of people that are one or two point friends based on the list we looked at today. And then they're going to meet in a group with uh, other one or two point friends. And together they're going to aspire to grow in friendship, grow in Christ by ultimately growing in worshiping him. And that's where the ability to put to death uh, the flesh comes from. So I just wanted to give you an example really briefly as we finish today. What could a one-hour meeting look like? And I want to tell you that I meet every week in a change group. And this is usually how it goes. Nice weather today. And then my change group partner says, are we going to cut to the chase or are we going to spend all our time with small talk? And I'm like, okay, yes, let's cut to the chase. What chapter are we at? I think it's chap- uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we start reading it, and it's always my fault. It's, we're always, that's the wrong one, and it's always one ahead. I always forget. And so we read, he, the, my change group partner's like, no, we're not in chapter 9, we're in chapter 10. I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's chapter 9. And so then we're like, oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, let's read chapter 10 together. So we read the, the passage together. And then we're like, that takes about small talk and reading scripture, about 20 minutes. Then we say, hey, what stood out to you in this passage? What's, what's making your heart want to worship Christ based on what we read today? Uh, and also, is there something that's pointing to an area uh, of change that's needed in your life. And so we both take times sharing about that, about 10 minutes. And then we take time praying for each other in light of what scripture has brought to light. Okay? And, and it's very relevant to say, hey, reading this scripture brought to, er- brought to light this area of my life. Could you ask me about it this week or next week when we meet? Uh, so that kind of becomes accountability group-ish, but it's not going to become the thing that you meet around. It's not like, hey, here are the things I'm keeping you accountable for. Let's talk, let's talk. It's always going to be like, hey, let's redirect our focus on Jesus and then worship him and let scripture show us where we should change. So we pray for each other in that way. And then we're like, hey, you know what would be great? It would be super cool if other people got to meet Jesus. Do you know anyone that's exploring the Bible, exploring the church? Let's pray for them. And then I would share also who we can pray for And so we pray for each other's friends or acquaintances that are exploring Christ. And then uh, in about five minutes, you say, we're meeting next week, right? It's that simple. And then if it's not that simple, you get out your calendars and you plan it. And so the point is, is that everyone can meet this very low bar (laughs) of meeting once a week to encourage each other in what God's word will bring to light. And so my invitation to you today is to put to sin Put sin to death ruthlessly in your own life. Uh, this full-hearted resistance, that's what you're called to. The Thano too is total annihilation of sin. Uh, and you do that if you're in Christ. You do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. But you also do that by surrounding yourself with brothers or sisters in Christ that are going to help you fight and also help you enjoy Jesus. So that's your invitation today. Help each other fight. Help each other enjoy Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that we're so incomplete on our own. We can't provide for ourselves. You provided for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You provide us with your Holy Spirit. You provide us with friends. God, I pray that we could grow in friendship as a church. I pray that we could love each other in a way that we would faithfully call each other to worshiping you more, addressing heart issues, and putting sin to death in our lives. 
Thank you that all this is possible through Jesus. So I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.